we just sang, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Um, anyone else in here feeling a little apathetic? <laughs> I mean, a, a time where it's a lot easier to sing those words than to conjure up the energy to actually do them, right? We've all had moments like that. Well, one of the things that I enjoy doing, and maybe this is masochistic, but I enjoy going, and when I'm feeling apathetic, to despair.com. Have you ever been, have you ever been to despair.com? Some of you are nodding. Uh, it pretty much, they pretty much monopolize the market on apathy in kind of this absurd fashion. They, they mock these, these cheap motivational statements by poking fun, by creating their own posters. And there's one that I think captures the essence of their mission statement. It says, motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind robots will be doing soon. <laughs> Doesn't that get you excited and get you up and ready to go to work the next day? You know, going early, stay late, work hard. No, of course not. Well, here are a couple others of my favorites. Um, believe in yourself because the rest of us think you're an idiot. <laughs> Underachievement, because soaring with the eagles requires so much more effort. <laughs> Give up. At some point, hanging in there just makes you look like even e- an even bigger loser. Indifference. It takes 43 muscles to frown and 17 to smile, but it doesn't take any to just sit there with a dumb look on your face. And then finally, underachievement. The tallest blade of grass is the first to be cut by the lawnmower. You know, we we hear these and we look at the posters and and we laugh. We're supposed to. They're supposed to be funny. Uh, They're demotivational um, in their essence. But oftentimes we underestimate the seriousness of apathy. We can kind of be apathetic about apathy in one sense. And one of the easiest places for us to become apathetic is in our spiritual lives. How often have you thought about spiritual apathy? Well, those are the times in our lives where we're indifferent. We're unconcerned about what God is doing in our own hearts and unconcerned about what God is doing in the world around us. See, I think one of the greatest threats to Christian vitality is spiritual apathy. And apathy, it's a lot like high cholesterol, you know, when you go into the doctors and you get your checkup. And what does the doctor usually tell you when you have high cholesterol? You're not moving around enough. You're kind of taking in a lot, and you're not eating very healthily, and your, your cholesterol begins to climb through the roof. Well, same with apathy. It's a sign that we're immobile, that we're sitting still, that we just don't care enough to change. And just like high cholesterol, apathy is a silent killer, slowly making its way and hardening our hearts over time. I mean, is there anything more dangerous than apathy? Yeah, we could say if you're at that point where you're, you're making the key decision whether you're going to walk away from God completely, utter rebellion and disbelief, never to trust in God again, yeah, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. And, and that's scary, and I don't want to you know, play that down. But I think most of us in here this morning, many of us anyway, are in danger of a more subtle death. We're high-risk patients to spiritual apathy. And as we get into the end of the Old Testament, really the last two chapters of the very last book, we find God's people waiting. 
You see, the nation of Israel had been in exile for decades. And finally, this small group of God's people make their way back to the promised land. The temple has been rebuilt, but, but the promised land is full of anything but promise at this point. It's a land of famine. People are starving and barely making by. The temple is no bigger than a Cracker Jack box. I mean, it seems so trite compared to what Solomon's temple and all of its glory was. And where, what is Jerusalem? But it feels like this backwater sub-province of Persia rather than God's city in all of its glory. And we find God's people in a place of dissonance where God's promises and what they're experiencing in the rest of their life just do not match up. We've been there before, right? We've all been there where we're asking the question, where are you, God? Where are your promises? We're in your land, finally returned. Where are you? Waiting can do one of two things to us, right? It can make us one of the most patient people that others have ever met, or it can make us some of the most apathetic and bitter people that we've ever come across. And when we find Israel, although their normal enemies, Babylon, Assyria, do not pose a threat, the enemies of the heart have taken hold of Israel. Apathy has slowly and silently done its work. And in the waiting, they've grown weary, and at this point, they're ready to throw in the towel. They're partially obedient. They're kind of doing what they're called to do. But God sees the danger of what lies ahead, and he sends my messenger. That's what Malachi's name means, my messenger. And he sends them to the the nation of Israel before they enter 400 years of silence. It's time between Malachi and Matthew, between the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And just to give you perspective, the United States hasn't even been around as a country for 400 years. We have another 163 years before we have our 400th anniversary. And Israel's on the brink of 400 years of silence. So he sends Malachi from the passage we just heard read this morning. And like all prophets, he kind of plays the role of a spiritual cardiologist. He gives us the hard-hitting facts about our hearts. And he knows, like most of the prophets, that one of the greatest threat to Christian vitality is spiritual apathy. And so he diagnoses, kind of helps us out in our walk with Christ, he diagnoses three alarming symptoms of an apathetic heart. Three alarming symptoms. The first symptom of an apathetic heart is that we doubt God's goodness. We become indifferent about our spiritual lives because, quite frankly, we think God doesn't care anymore. We kind of get to that point. We may not say it, but we feel it deep within. The very first thing God tells us in the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2, is, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? We're still struggling to feed our families. How have you loved us? We're still sitting in oppression. How have you loved us? We're a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. How have you loved us? We're waiting for an answer. And Israel, or God rather, gives them a history lesson on his grace. Right there in chapter 1, he, he points out one piece of his grace throughout history. But he could have gone much farther. He could have said, he reminds his people of how he chose them. 
He looks at Jacob and Esau and he chooses their ancestor Jacob to give great wealth and abundance and to bless and to be the pathway towards national blessing, the line that which Christ would come through. But not only Jacob does God choose, but he also chooses Jacob's son, Joseph, and puts him second in command in Egypt during a global famine when the whole nation of Israel, this family of Israel, would have starved to death, but by God's grace, he would have put Joseph there in second in command. Not only that, but we also see that decades, actually centuries later, when Israel is in slavery now in Egypt, we find that God's people experience extreme deliverance by the hand of God through a prophet that, that God raises up by the name of Moses. And he brings Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then, by God's grace, he creates this beautiful nation and raises up kings like King David and King Solomon and expands their borders. You can almost hear God saying, do you remember? And then, after, God, after God's people had abandoned God time and time again, he brings them back from exile. They're still in the promised land by no right of their own, but by God's grace. And here, he does so by a cupbearer named Nehemiah. Of all people, he does so through a cupbearer. It's as if God could have hold, held up the Bible, talking to the Old Testament community, and said, I love you this much. I love you this much. And in our mind, I mean, yeah, this much. Okay, that's not very much. But when you look through the pages over and over and over, we see story after story of God caring, of God loving, and not giving up on his world, not giving up on you and me. And then when we get to Malachi 3, chapter 6, we hear these comforting words. For I, the Lord, do not change. I have loved you, and I, the Lord, do not change. When we're in the thick of it, when we're knee-deep in bills, when we're jaded by love lost, or when sometimes we're just bored with life, we can easily say, God, where are you? What have you done for us to show us your love? We're tired of waiting. And, 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 in, and in the moment when we feel like God's forget, forgotten us, it's easy to forget what he's done for us in our yesterdays. We then become apathetic in our lives. And rather than saying, take my life, all of me, we say, take my Sundays, sometimes. You know? Don't take my work life. Don't take my family. Don't touch my finances. Don't touch my interactions with poor and the disenfranchised. Take my Sundays, sometimes. I'll give you that. Because, meh, that's okay for me. We become apathetic in our walk with Christ. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, you see Israel here, they're not, they're not disconnected from the benefits that God has showed their ancestors. And we as the church are not disconnected from the benefits that God has shown Israel throughout history. Because through Israel, we see the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, come. And then on this cornerstone, Christ, the church is founded. All these benefits we also bask in. When we hear these stories over and over, we hear God's whisper, I have loved you and I do not change. 
Therefore you, O children of Jacob, because God doesn't change, are not consumed. Why? From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Doubting God's goodness has always been a key component to every sin that this world has ever seen. It's a key component of the very first sin when the serpent is trying to deceive Eve and doubting God's goodness and caring for them. And every single time that we push God away and choose something that isn't good for us, it's because we doubt that God has our good in mind out of his goodness. But because he's good, we see here in this passage, he holds back his wrath and he waits for us. You see, when we feel like God's abandoned us, it's not because God's moved. For I, the Lord, do not change, but it's because we have. Do you know that God longs for your best? Do you know that God loves you better than you can love yourself? Do you know that that God's goodness does not run dry? Some of you this morning need to return to the unchanging God. You may ask, like Israel does, even in our passage, well, how shall we return? And I think, in one sense, returning looks a lot like remembering. Um, Have you forgotten this side of the cross that God has become human? He's entered in a lowly estate. God of the universe became humanity, a babe in a manger. As we'll see next week and remember. (laughs) And we'll also see that He's died the death we deserve to die. And through his death, he's defeated death that we might experience life and life abundant. How can we remember the God who is good unless we immerse ourselves in the stories of his goodness? Are you in God's word daily? Remembering what he has done so you can remember how he is interacting in your life today. He's calling you to return. But when we don't and when we won't, we find the second symptom, second symptom of an apathetic heart. An apathetic heart always settles for lesser loves. It always settles for lesser loves. When we give up on God's best love, we turn to a second best love. You see, we are lovers by nature. We're affective beings. We, we worship, we long to adore something in the center of our lives. And money has just enough bling and whispers just enough bang that it easily becomes the primo example of a lesser love, as we see here in Malachi 3. You see, in in the law of Moses, God had ordained the Levites to live in the land without an inheritance. They were landless. They were propertyless, and they survived on the generosity of the rest of the people, the rest of the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a huge step for God to trust humanity in this way. Because in one sense, he's saying, all right, nation of Israel, regardless of famine or feast, care for the Levites. And okay, Levites, whether you're getting famine or feast in response, don't waver on your calling to direct my people in my ways. You see, generosity, it was a required component of God's people or the community would suffer as a whole. Well, in Malachi, this whole system is, is limping along. And that's an apropos metaphor here because 
God's people are bringing these lame sheep. Remember, they're in a time of famine, and they're bringing lame sheep and sick sheep to the Levites. This is their food to which they're going to eat. But they're in a famine. I mean, we've got to do what we've got to survive, right? And so they bring these lame sheep and, and these sick sheep to the Levites, and the Levites are at the point where we know it's a famine, and we'll get what we can get. God's word calls us to call God's people to bring blameless sheep to the Lord. But, hey, getting leftovers from KFC is better than dumpster diving, right? And so we're going to get what we can, and we're going to keep our mouths shut. And so the whole system has begun to, di- to, di- to dissolve right before the people of God. And God is watching, and he's saying, this is less than what I've called you to be. And here this religious issue which so easily happens in every aspect of our lives, becomes a social issue. The people of God, he says here in our passage, are robbing God and at the same time robbing their brother, their fellow Israelite, by not following God's commands. And not giving 100% of what God has called them to, they're robbing God and they're robbing their brother. Look at verse 8. How shall we return in verse 7? Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And God, he's always called his people to bring him their best. Never their second best. Never what's the rest or the leftovers. And although there are other issues in the community, divorce is on the rise, idolatry is prevalent. We see one of the key litmus tests of faith Here for God in Malachi is generosity, what we do with our finances. And I know people are like, oh great, the pastor's talking about money, of course, right? Um, But as we're journeying through scripture, the reason we talk about money as a faith community, it's not something that's off limits because God doesn't treat it as something that's off limits. Actually, when God calls his people to return, it isn't merely a silent prayer of confession in a back closet that doesn't change your life but he longs to see his people live according to his design of generosity as well. You see, not only is being apathetic in our call to generosity giving God our second best, but it's, it's, it's accepting and settling for second best in your own life. I mean, he calls his people to generosity not so that he can get something from us. He doesn't need anything from us, but he longs something for us. Imagine with me a community. This is the community God paints here in Scripture. A community where some have been called to teach, to set apart, to point God's people in the way of flourishing, the way God's designed us to be, the way he's designed us and created us to walk. And he's also instituted or made this institution to both empower these individuals to continue study and also serve the people alongside of gathering finances to care for the most vulnerable in our city, the widowed, the orphaned, the immigrant, and the poor, which we talked about a few weeks ago. This whole institution was called to be a change agent in the community and for the community. Nobody was lazy, no one was stingy, but all was looking out for the other. The Levites would call God's people to God's best for their lives, and God's people would respond in generosity and care and in obedience. Don't you want to be a part of that community? I mean, isn't that something beautiful about why we gather together centered on the word of God? Because we long to know what God has called us to and who he's called us to be. 
for us today, Jesus Christ has established his church as this institution. But in old, the Old Testament, this institution was the temple. And I know this is a lot of background information, but this is really important as we seek to tackle this text. So we don't think that this is just a ploy to squeeze money out of a wallet or anything along those lines. This is really what God is calling his people to here in Malachi and us by nature, followers of Jesus. So how is he calling his people to leave this apathetic life behind, but to return to him in generosity? Malachi, he's calling each and every one of us to just give this God a try. Look at verse 10. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Because in this temple structure, they would care for the the widowed, the orphan, the immigrant, as well as the Levite. It became a well-subsidized system in which they could care for those who did not uh, grow grain themselves, either because of incapacitation or what have you. And thereby, God says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. In essence, God's asking his people to give him the 30-day Hulu Plus trial, you know? Test me out. Obey me. Try it out. And see what happens. You're not going to want to cancel. You know? (laughs) We're going to get you. You know? We're going to get you locked in. Because it's that good. And just so we're clear here, um, God's never called his people ever to a works-based salvation. Meaning, if you're good enough, if you just do exactly what I tell you to do, then I'm going to give you everything you've ever wanted. That's not what's happening here in this passage. Rather, God's calling his people to a faith-based response. It's subtle, but it's different. It's a statement where we say, I trust God as my king, and I invite and I obey what he's called me to, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude. And I watch as his presence is welcome amongst us and transforms our surroundings. You see, God, God is always longing to defeat the lesser loves in our lives to show us that his love is best. And an apathy, it can never be defeated by legalism. More rules on top of rules. Apathy can only be defeated by grace. And one of the most gracious ways that God displays his love for us is when we're in weakness and we step out in faith and we call what we see here the Lord of hosts is the title used as he fights for us. Now, this title, Lord of Hosts, we can't just skimp over it because it happens here in Malachi more than any other Old Testament book. In this small four-chapter book, Lord of Hosts is all over the place. So what's going on here? Why does God use this title for himself here in Malachi? Well, Babylon, they had their hosts of armies. Assyria had their hosts of armies. But the title, Lord of Hosts, captures the power and the force of heaven impacting earth. God, the Lord, Yahweh, has his hosts, his armies, with all the forces of heaven to seek the good of his people. God's pleading. He's saying, I know you're weak. I know you're struggling to pay your bills. I know you don't know where the stock market's going next week. I know that you're wrestling and you're scared, but return to me in generosity today 
as I have called you and I will fight for you. Watch how I'll take care of you. This is what he's saying. But even here, we have to pause because we have expectations, right? We instantly jump to what that means. We've heard the prosperity gospel and seen it come up empty. That if you just drop a couple bucks in the offering box next week, you'll get a raise. No, that's not what God is saying here. We have to remember that God's talking to an agricultural society. There are people of farmers. And so it's not this expectation that today and faithfulness tomorrow is completely changed. But sometimes it's faithfulness over time. If we have inappropriate expectations, we can brutally feel failure even in the midst of success, quite frankly. So I want you to think of it this way. Israel, in an agricultural setting, here their crops are meagerly growing. And God says, I want you to listen to my commands from the law of Moses to be generous. As I've called you, no more of these sick and lame sheep, but give me your first fruits, is his words. And yet their crops are growing. So it calls for sacrificial giving to begin with over a season. And then, what does he say? The Lord of hosts, this one with all the power of heaven who comes and fights for his people, will come and defeat the devourer, which is this locust who eats their crops. Very agricultural in warfare. That's weird. You know, we have pesticides for that. But God does this here for Israel. And continue to give generously, and I'll open the the storehouses of heaven. That doesn't mean a Lamborghini is going to pop from the sky. That means he's providing the rain for their crops, for their daily needs. And then when harvest comes, he promises enough for the community to survive. No more famine. The God of the universe controls the weather. But it takes a season to see fruition. Faithfulness over time. This is what God's calling his people to. He wants his people to cultivate a lifestyle where our circumstances don't determine our faithfulness. But our faithfulness is an opportunity to invite God into our circumstances, no matter how meager, no matter how broken they may feel. God wants his people, I want to repeat this, to cultivate a lifestyle where our circumstances don't determine our faithfulness, but our faithfulness invites God into our circumstances. You see, if God's people would do this, return to him in in the way he's calling them to, in generosity, rather than chasing after these lesser loves of self-absorption, pursuing to have their security and their own wealth stored up rather than trusting in God's promises, then the world will look with awe at that different kind of community. Verse 12 says, Then all the nations will be called, will call you blessed, right? For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Once again, this title just keeps popping up. No longer a land of famine, but a land of delight, of enjoyment, of flourishing. It'll have global impact from this postage stamp sized nation. Generosity, it changes the landscape of a city and people take notice of a community that is generous. But there's a third symptom which will always stop you in your tracks. I think it might be one of the most deadly symptoms of all of an apathetic heart. An apathetic heart produces cynicism. I mean, do you see the progression here? You begin to doubt God's goodness for whatever reason, whatever's happened in your life, 
Then in doubting God's goodness, we pursue lesser loves. And then when they come up empty, which they will, and we won't return to God and we're pursuing lesser loves, we, we end up cynical, pessimistic, broken. There is no hope for a better world. This just is what it is. And cynicism, like a poison, it pumps through our veins of every apathetic heart, slowing our return to a standstill. Look with me at verse 14 again, where God calls out Israel here. You said it is vain to serve God. This is worthless. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed rather than the humble. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, cynicism, it grumbles at this point. What's the point? It won't even shout it. It doesn't extend the energy. It just grumbles. Cynicism, it always has a way of finding the dark side of a situation. You know your spouse's flaws. You know your job's issues. You know the failures of the church. You know the defects of your friends, if you want to call them that. And at the end of the day, you don't even think God's doing a very good job. You're kind of tired. You're worn out. You're weary from waiting. Test God in generosity? You've seen people stab others in the back. You've seen people manipulate to get ahead, and it works. You've seen people time and time again test God's justice, is what we see here, the people proclaiming. And they tested God, and they they escaped. You've given up on a promise for a better tomorrow. Today is all there is. And we may not say this out loud, but our actions speak louder than our words many times. Our apathy with our hands reveals the apathy of our hearts. I mean, if God were to look at our world today, he would look in our credit card statements, he'd look in our bank accounts, and he would say, mine, not me, not the church, God would say that. And he would ask the question, are you being faithful and generous with what he has given you? Apathy, it slowly destroys our hearts. And C.S. Lewis brilliantly writes in his book, Screw Tape Letters, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. If you're anything like me, I want to know how I can avoid going down this gentle slope of cynicism. Give me a signpost. How do we fight becoming apathetic people? We have to hope. We have to hope in the one who comes. And hold on to the hope of the one who comes. You see, God knows that the world isn't right. He knows that you're going through pain and he's watching and he will not forever stand by and watch. A day is coming. And if you look in in Malachi 4, God gives this beautiful picture. It's kind of complex, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's very agricultural. Once again, the crisis here in Malachi is agricultural. And so he paints this picture. Yes, Kelly's really enjoying this as as an ag um, marketing just extraordinary over here. But what we have in in Malachi chapter 4 is finally, amidst what felt like a forever darkness, the sun of righteousness begins to dawn. And those who have disregarded God, chosen to pursue lesser loves and embrace them, forever being cynical towards God, are described as chaff or, 
or the, the extra leftover wheat that's blowing across the fields. And when the sun of righteousness begins to dawn, the presence of the heat and the extremeness of this righteousness bursts the chaff into flames. But at the same time, what about the righteous? What about those who have chosen to hold to God's goodness in the face of waiting, to persevere, to hold on to hope? It says they're like calves that go dancing on the field, stomping out the ashes. It's drastic. It's intense. But the same sun of righteousness that dawns amidst all this darkness has two different responses. The same beauty, the same extremeness of heat and glory, but two reactions depending on whose side you're on, depending on whether you hold to the goodness of God and hold on to hope of the one who comes. In the midst of waiting, we must hold on. God's story isn't over. What is, is not what will always be. But there's a future that is glorious And we find the Old Testament ends with the people of God wrestling in apathy, about to enter 400 years of silence, as we said. But just before the book ends, the very last verse points us to the prophet who precedes his coming. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's giving us a foretaste. He's giving us a heads up. I mean, what does this mean? Well, the Gospels are very clear on what it means. They're very extravagant on ascribing John the Baptist as this forerunner, this Elijah, this prophet. And he prepares God's people for God's coming. He points us to the better way, the center of our hope, the one who comes, Jesus the Christ the one who came to die for us when we doubt God's goodness, the one who came to die for us when we pursue lesser loves, the one who came to die for us when we choose cynicism and apathy, this one who came, who lived, who died and rose again is coming again. So in one sense, very much like Malachi's day, after the exile, we look forward to Christ's return. The promised one, who at the dawn of his returning will bring great joy to his own, but also great justice and judgment to those who have rejected him. It's not meant to be comforting to those who push God away. It's meant to call us to the mercy of God and to lay ourselves just fully out before God's mercy. It's time to return. If you're pushing him away, it's time to come back. It's time to hope in the one who has come and is coming again. Will you let Jesus heal your apathetic heart? Will you give this God a try? He so desperately longs to give you his best for you in his way. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in prayer this morning. We are thankful to even be able to live life, to have the gift of breath, to be able to gather together. Many of us drove here in cars that many in the world do not even think or dream of owning. We live in a world where generosity is besmirched and building up savings to the point that we can sit back and avoid others 
rather than care for others. Lord, may you shake up our worlds. May we not be satisfied with apathy. May you guard our hearts from cynicism as it slowly kills us. And may you empower us to just give you a try. Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Amen.